0: Book One, Chapter Six of Les Misérables, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa. Les Misérables by Victor Hugo. Book One, A Just Man, Chapter Six, Who Guarded His House for Him. The house in which he lived consisted, as we have said, of a ground floor and one story above, three rooms on the ground floor, three chambers on the first, and an attic above. Behind the house was a garden, a quarter of an acre in extent. The two women occupied the first floor, the bishop was lodged below. The first room, opening on the street, served him as a dining-room, the second was his bedroom, and the third his oratory there was no exit possible from this oratory except by passing through the bedroom nor from the bedroom without passing through the dining-room at the end of the suite in the oratory there was a detached alcove with a bed for use in cases of hospitality the bishop offered this bed to county curates whom business or the requirements of their parishes brought to denya the pharmacy of the hospital a small building which had been added to the house and abutted to the garden had been transformed into a kitchen and cellar in addition to this there was in the garden a stable which had formerly been the kitchen of the hospital and in which the bishop kept two cows no matter what the quantity of milk they gave he invariably sent half of it every morning to the sick people in the hospital i am paying my tithes he said his bedroom was tolerably large and rather difficult to warm in bad weather as wood is extremely dear in Denya, he hit upon the idea of having a compartment of boards constructed in the cow-shed. Here he passed his evenings during seasons of severe cold. He called it his winter salon. In this winter salon, as in the dining-room, there was no other furniture than a square table in white wood and four straw-seated chairs. In addition to this, the dining-room was ornamented with an antique sideboard painted pink in watercolors. Out of a similar sideboard, properly draped with white napery and imitation lace, the bishop had constructed the altar which decorated his oratory. His wealthy penitents and the sainted women of Denia had more than once assessed themselves to raise the money for a new altar for Monsignor's oratory. On each occasion he had taken the money and had given it to the poor. The most beautiful of altars, he said, is the soul of an unhappy creature consoled and thanking God in his oratory there were two straw prie there was an arm-chair also in straw in his bedroom when by chance he received seven or eight persons at one time the prefect or the general or the staff of the regiment and garrison or several pupils from the little seminary the chairs had to be fetched from the winter salon in the stable the prie dieu from the oratory and the arm-chair from the bedroom in this way as many as eleven chairs could be collected for the visitors a room was dismantled for each new guest. It sometimes happened that there were twelve in the party. The bishop then relieved the embarrassment of the situation by standing in front of the chimney if it were winter, or by strolling in the garden if it were summer. There was still another chair in the detached alcove, but the straw was half gone from it, and it had but three legs, so that it was of service only when propped against the wall mademoiselle baptistine had also in her own room a very large easy chair of wood which had formerly been gilded and which was covered with flowered pekin but they had been obliged to hoist this bergère up to the first story through the window as the staircase was too narrow it could not therefore be reckoned among the possibilities in the way of furniture mademoiselle baptistine's ambition had been to be able to purchase a set of drawing-room furniture in yellow utrecht velvet stamped with a rose pattern and with mahogany in swan's-neck style with a sofa. But this would have cost five hundred francs at least, and in view of the fact that she had only been able to lay by forty-two francs and ten sous for this purpose in the course of five years, she had ended by renouncing the idea. However, who is there who has attained his ideal? Nothing is more easy to present to the imagination than the bishop's bedchamber. A glazed door opened on the garden. Opposite this was the bed. A hospital bed of iron with a canopy of green serge in the shadow of the bed behind a curtain were the utensils of the toilet which still betrayed the elegant habits of the man of the world there were two doors one near the chimney opening into the oratory the other near the bookcase opening into the dining room the bookcase was a large cupboard with glass doors filled with books the chimney was of wood painted to represent marble and habitually without a fire in the chimney stood a pair of fire dogs of iron, ornamented above with two garlanded vases, and flutings which had formerly been silvered with silver leaf, which was a sort of episcopal luxury. Above the chimney piece hung a crucifix of copper, with the silver worn off, fixed on the background of threadbare velvet in a wooden frame, from which the gilding had fallen. Near the glass door a large table with an inkstand, loaded with a confusion of papers and with huge volumes; before the door an arm chair of straw, in front of the bed, a prie dieu borrowed from the oratory. Two portraits in oval frames were fastened to the wall on each side of the bed. Small gilt inscriptions on the plain surface of the cloth at the side of these figures indicated that the portraits represented one, the Abbe of Chailot, Bishop of St. Claude, the other, Abbe Torteau, Vicar-General of Agde, Abbey of Grandchamp, Border of Citeaux, Diocese of Chartres. When the bishop succeeded to this apartment after the hospital patients, he had found these portraits there, and had left them. They were priests, and probably donors, two reasons for respecting them. All that he knew about these two persons was that they had been appointed by the king, the one to his bishopric, the other to his benefice, on the same day, the 27th of April, 1785. Madame Magliori, having taken the pictures down to dust, The bishop had discovered these particulars written in whitish ink on a little square of paper, yellowed by time, and attached to the back of the portrait of the Abbe of Grandchamp with four wafers. At his window he had an antique curtain of a coarse woolen stuff, which finally became so old that in order to avoid the expense of a new one, Madame Agliori was forced to take a large seam in the very middle of it. This seam took the form of a cross. The bishop often called attention to it. "'How delightful that is!' he said." All the rooms in the house, without exception, those on the ground floor as well as those on the first floor, were whitewashed, which is a fashion in barracks and hospitals. However, in their latter years Madame Magliori discovered, beneath the paper which had been washed over, paintings, ornamenting the apartment of Mademoiselle Baptistine, as we shall see further on. Before becoming a hospital, this house had been the ancient parliament house of the bourgeois, hence this decoration the chambers were paved in red bricks which were washed every week with straw mats in front of all the beds altogether this dwelling which was attended to by the two women was exquisitely cleaned from top to bottom this was the sole luxury which the bishop permitted he said that takes nothing from the poor it must be confessed however that he still retained from his former possessions six silver knives and forks and a soup ladle which madame Magliori contemplated every day with delight as they glistened splendidly upon the coarse linen cloth and since we are now painting the bishop of denya as he was in reality we must add that he had said more than once i find it difficult to renounce eating from silver dishes To this silverware must be added two large candlesticks of massive silver, which he had inherited from a great-aunt. These candlesticks held two wax candles, and usually figured on the bishop's chimney-piece. When he had anyone to dinner, Madame Magliori lighted the two candles and set the candlesticks on the table. In the bishop's own chamber, at the head of his bed, there was a small cupboard, in which Madame Magliori locked up the six silver knives and forks and the big spoon every night but it is necessary to add that the key was never removed the garden which had been rather spoiled by the ugly buildings which we have mentioned was composed of four alleys in cross form radiating from a tank another walk made the circuit of the garden and skirted the white wall which enclosed it these alleys left behind them four square plots rimmed with box in three of these madame Magliori cultivated vegetables in the fourth the bishop had planted some flowers Here and there stood a few fruit-trees. Madame Magliori had once remarked, with a sort of gentle malice, "'Monseigneur, you who turn everything to account have nevertheless one useless plot. It would be better to grow salads there than bouquets.' "'Madame Magliori,' retorted the bishop, "'you are mistaken. The beautiful is as useful as the useful.' He added, after a pause, "'More so, perhaps.' This plot, consisting of three or four beds, occupied the bishop almost as much as did his books. He liked to pass an hour or two there, trimming, hoeing, and making holes here and there in the earth, into which he dropped seeds. He was not as hostile to insects as a garden could have wished to see him. Moreover, he made no pretensions to botany. He ignored groups and consistency. He made not the slightest effort to decide between torn foe and the natural method, he took part neither with the buds against the Cotyledons, nor with Jussieu against Linnaeus. He did not study plants. He loved flowers. He respected learned men greatly. He respected the ignorant still more. And without ever failing these, in these two respects, he watered his flower-beds every summer evening with a tin watering-pot painted green. The house had not a single door which could be locked. The door of the dining-room, which, as we have said, opened directly on the cathedral square, had formerly been ornamented with locks and bolts like the door of a prison the bishop had had all this iron work removed and this door was never fastened either by night or by day with anything except the latch all that the first passer-by had to do at any hour was to give it a push at first the two women had been very much tried by this door which was never fastened but monsieur de daigne had said to them have bolts put on your rooms if that will please you they had ended by sharing his confidence or by at least acting as though they shared it. Madame Magliori alone had frights from time to time. As for the bishop, his thought can be found explained, or at least indicated, in the three lines which he wrote on the margin of a Bible. This is the shade of difference. The door of the physician should never be shut. The door of the priest should always be open. On another book, entitled Philosophy of the Medical Science, he had written this other note, "'Am not I a physician like them?' i also have my patients and then too i have some who i call my unfortunates again he wrote do not inquire the name of him who seeks the shelter of you the very man who is embarrassed by his name is the one who needs shelter it chanced that a worthy cure i know not whether it was the cure of chulebru or the cure of pompieri took it into his head to ask him one day probably at the instigation of madame Magliori whether monsieur was sure that he was not committing an indiscretion, to a certain extent, in leaving his door unfastened day or night, at the mercy of any one who should choose to enter, and whether, in short, he did not fear lest some misfortune might occur in a house so little guarded. The bishop touched his shoulder with gentle gravity, and said to him, Nisi dominus coster Diert domum in vanum vigilant qui coster eam. Unless the lord guard the house, in vain do they watch who guard it. Then he spoke of something else. He was fond of saying, "There is a bravery of the priest as well as the bravery of a colonel of dragoons." Only he added, "Ours must be tranquil." End of book one, chapter six. Recording by Melissa.